Hey everyone, this is David Chen. Just wanted to let you know that this episode of The Tobolowski Files contains adult language. Listener discretion is advised. I see a bad moon rising I see trouble on the way I see earthquakes and lightning Hello everyone and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. I'm David Chen, editor-at-large at SlashFilm.com, and joining me today, he is the man who played Mr. Anderson in the 1990 horror film Mirror Mirror, Stephen Tobolowski. <laughs> Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? Fine, Mr. Anderson. You know, you know what I remember most about Mirror Mirror? Tell me, sir. Uh, it was... A couple things. One, my performance, uh, Marina Sargente was the uh, director of the film. Robert Brinkman of uh, Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party shot the film. But uh, I had to die in that film. And Marina asked me if I could be my own special effect. Never has anyone asked me to do that. So she said I was supposed to die by psychic means, by having my... uh, trachea closed by psychic power it's, it's a terrible way to die david yeah that sounds horrible um, and so- if you watch the movie you will know <laughs> it's a terrible way to die i i killed myself in that movie as a special effect and i ruptured a blood vessel in my eye wow was my commitment to it but the thing i remember most about mirror mirror and i must put this down for the record is that my wife Anne was in that movie playing a realtor. Now, she was nine months pregnant at the time. But unfortunately, the stork came in the middle of the shoot, and she had a scene to shoot, I believe with Karen Black, maybe, the day after Anne gave birth. Well, you know, I don't know if you know, David, but Anne is two or three-quarters hillbilly. Uh, After she gave... (laughs) I would never have guessed. No. After she gave birth, I was asleep in the chair they have in the maternity ward little rooms. Anne was up that morning after she gave birth, dressed, cleaning up the damn room. And the movie was sending a limo by to pick her up from the maternity ward, take her to shoot her scenes and come back to the maternity ward. And she stuffed a pillow under her shirt for the final scene of that movie that she shot. That's a big one. So just that alone is worth seeing Mirror Mirror for. That is commitment right there. Yeah, I'll say. Well, I chose Mirror Mirror today, Stephen, because uh, it is a scary time of the year. It's the scariest time of the year, David. Halloween. (laughs) Don't don't say it that way. That's really creepy. Uh, (laughs) Halloween is rapidly approaching, and so we saw an opportunity to kill two birds with one stone. Yes. Uh, number one, get out a Halloween-related episode of the Tobolowski Files. Yes. And number two, finally answer a mystery that has plagued listeners of the Tobolowski Files for years. And that is, what is going on with episode one of the Tobolowski Files? Why does that not exist on the Tobolowski Files podcast feed? 
Episode one, people, just this week I did a story from the new book and someone came up to me and said, where the hell is episode one? So David, where is episode one? What happened to episode one? Well, what happened with episode one? That was the very first episode we ever recorded, obviously. And uh, in my opinion, it was a bit rough. We hadn't yet figured out what the format of the show (laughs) was going to be. We hadn't figured out what we wanted the show to be. And so... uh, Okay, hold it. Hold it one second. In, in, In the interest of honesty... Let me just bring forward to our listening audience what David Chin told me. So this is what I'm hearing now. What David Chin told me was that there was a problem with the electronic transfer of episode one from SlashFilm.com to iTunes, so the transfer could not be made. I did not know it was a quality issue, David. Well, I am sure that you believe that that's what I said. Uh, But as a point of fact... Uh, it was because, yeah, we weren't really sure what the show would be, what the format would be. And so rather than have that floating around out there, we yep. resolved to just uh, redo the episode at some point in time in the future. That day has finally come, Stephen. And today is that day, and we're going to get this out in time for Halloween 2014. Uh, is Halloween one of your favorite holidays, Stephen? Yeah, it, it's not only one of my favorite holidays, but David, here's a fact. A factoid, I think, is the proper phrase to use that maybe you and the listening audience doesn't know, that I was amazed to learn that Halloween is becoming the most observed holiday in America. And that's more than Thanksgiving, even with the help of football, more than Christmas with the help of Christmas trees, presents, Jesus, and Hollywood movies. More money is spent on the celebration of Halloween than any other holiday. And it makes one ask the question, what is Halloween? I did a rudimentary search on the internet and came to the conclusion no one knows and no one cares. Historically, Halloween was part of All Saints Day. This was a holiday in the church that very few people celebrate anymore. The idea was that on this day, we honor the dead, including saints and martyrs. The holiday started with a fast, so no meat was to be eaten. It became traditional to eat fruits and vegetables apples, cider, and soul cakes that still are associated with Halloween. It wasn't much of a jump to say that some of the dead came back to earth. Not all of them were friendly. Some were looking for revenge. Therefore, it was important to wear costumes so you couldn't be recognized by a returning ghost looking to get even. Makes all the sense in the world. This set of beliefs got boiled up with even more ancient pagan beliefs of the Celts that this day marked the beginning of the dark part of the year. It was a time when fairies were more likely to walk on the earth. Fires were lit for the souls of the dead. Eating and drinking began as a symbolic way of holding back the winter. The eating, and more likely the drinking, led to certain individuals imitating mischievous spirits getting into trouble. Troublemakers at Halloween were recorded as early as the 18th century in Scotland. I suspect drinking and trouble goes back even earlier than this, and that this statistic is only an example of poor record-keeping. So out of the centuries of multiple meanings, from Holy Day and Fast Day, to Creepy Living Dead Day, to Let's Get Drunk and Party Day, which one do you think stuck? No need to answer. Rhetorical question. I've seen this effect in Hollywood for years. Whenever actors had to play drunks, drug addicts, or degenerates, 
There was a sort of Stanislavski need to practice for months before and during the shoot. I've always wondered if this dedication to the craft would be the same if they had to play St. Augustine and had to be celibate for a few months. Don't answer. Rhetorical question. Some brief observations on the current state of Halloween. First, and most importantly, I don't think many people use Halloween to worship the devil. I don't think many people actually believe in the devil. It's too much effort. Dana Gould, the brilliant writer and producer of The Simpsons, told me he went to a meeting of Satanists. He said they weren't very evil at all. They just believed you should be able to eat all the cupcakes you wanted without guilt. So the question is, why? Why is Halloween so popular when it doesn't seem to have any meaning? The answer is, of course, sex. Or more specifically, the possibility of sex. And even more specifically, the possibility of sex with a UFO. Unidentified friend from the office at a Halloween party. Two ingredients are necessary for this kind of sex to occur. It is the deadly mix of alcohol and costumes. For years now, people have been warning about the excesses of alcohol. But even with public service announcements and Mothers Against Drunk Driving commercials, they've not touched on the science of how alcohol works, which, like malaria, is quite miraculous. Alcohol is one of the only substances in nature that can create contradictory effects. Like light, that Einstein proved has the ability to act like waves or like particles at the same time. Or like chocolate, that contains a chemical that works in the brain to both satisfy and create hunger. Alcohol has the ability to both remove and magnify guilt. Before and during the party, it removes guilt. After the party, it magnifies it. Side note. If you are invited to a Halloween party, just bring something to drink. Don't worry about the food. Food is very unimportant at a Halloween party. Food gets in the way of sex. It spoils the effect to dress up like the Lord of the Dead and then eat a sandwich. It's hard to eat chips when you're wearing fake fangs. This brings me to the costumes. The purpose of the Halloween costume seems to be to channel your inner prostitute. Women have many costume choices. The most popular are Vampira, Catwoman, Elvira, some other female vampire other than Vampira and Elvira, Heidi the Milkmaid. Heidi the Milkmaid is a good one. Besides being able to stand out in a crowd of female vampires, you are able to utilize that Renaissance Fair outfit you spent $400 on three years ago that you only wore one time. And last but not least, there's the ever-popular Catholic schoolgirl. These are the most popular costumes. Others work just so long as you look like some type of stripper. Men don't have it so easy. For a couple of reasons. One is physical, one is spiritual. The spiritual reason is that men are intrinsically lazy and are not inclined to expending energy on dressing up unless they're gay. Now, if you are gay, disregard this entire thesis. Halloween is your time of year. Enjoy. But because of the lazy factor, the number one costume choice for men is also the vampire. You just have to wear a black coat and slick your hair back. Some men are too lazy to slick their hair back. Now they just wear something black and say they're Tony Soprano. This leads us into the second Halloween challenge for men, the physical. Men are challenged 
because of hair. They lose it. If you're going for the vampire look, you pretty much have to slick your hair back, like Bill Maher or Jay Leno. Both of them have very good vampire hair. But if you are going bald or balding, you can't really be a vampire. It's illogical. The only reason you are a vampire is to stay eternally young. That's why you drink the blood of the living. If you drink the blood of the living and you still lose your hair, you are not sucking enough blood. Or you're sucking the wrong kind of blood. Whatever you suck. It doesn't make sense. Nothing worse than being bald and dressing up like a vampire. This so dramatically cuts into your chances of sex with a UFO, I can't caution you enough against it. No matter how young you are, if you're losing your hair, better go as Vladimir Putin if you want any action at all. As I think back over my sordid history of the season, two Halloween parties come to mind. The first was when I was in sixth grade. That would make me 11 or 12. I was in that awkward period that preceded the bigger awkward period that preceded my later teen years that were remarkable only in that I never had a date. It was like for years God was loading a gun and buying ammo for a hunting rifle that would only sit in the closet. Anyway... In sixth grade, I was invited to Jimmy Foster's house for a Halloween party. Now, I'd never been invited to a Halloween party before. I had no idea what you did at a Halloween party. It seemed counterintuitive to me. In my life up to this point, Halloween was defined by being outside, hitting the streets, alone, or with my little sister. My older brother had nothing to do with us on Halloween. He had friends of his own, and he did not dress up. Halloween was when I would go out with one of Mom's pillowcases for candy, except for the one misguided year that I sipped the Kool-Aid and collected for UNICEF. A Halloween party inside of a house seemed confusing. Another feature of the Jimmy Foster party was that all of the girls from our class had been invited. I had never been to a mixed party with both sexes at night before. In fact, this was the first party I had ever been at with both sexes that didn't involve a bowling alley, a roller rink, or a pony ride. I sensed this was a very special event, and I would need a very special costume. I usually went out with the ghost costume. This was an old sheet with eye holes cut in it. It was easy, it was reusable, and it was well accessorized in that it matched the pillowcase I used for the candy. My mom took me to Skillern's Drugstore to buy, with cash money, a real costume. Yeah, this was my first. After an eternity of indecision, I went with the Godzilla costume. I was a huge Godzilla fan. I not only saw him as a great monster, but as sort of a role model. He never asked to be here, but now that he was here, he was going to do what he did best. Destroy everything. When I opened the package, I was confused. I wondered what Godzilla movie these guys had watched. When you think of Godzilla, hey, what do you think of? Dinosaur head, big swinging tail, bad breath. This costume had none of these defining qualities. No head, no tail, no spines down the back, no fire. 
this could have been my first encounter with buyer's remorse. It was wrong on so many levels. The costume, so to speak, was comprised of a black plastic tunic and pants. Godzilla wasn't black. He was a lizard. He was green. And on the tunic, there was a drawing of the real Godzilla with the title, Godzilla, King of Monsters. Rather than terrify, this picture only seemed to accentuate the failings of the costume. Also, when you wear a costume that has printed on it what the costume is supposed to be, chances are it's a bad costume. As I have said, there is no lizard head. It had a mask with two eye holes held on by a thin rubber band with two staples. The strangest part of this strange costume was that the makers had opted not to go with the Godzilla face. It was a phantom of the opera face. Now that I understand a little about manufacturing costs and marketing, I appreciate that the distributors probably had an excess of the Phantom of the Opera masks, in that this was, what, 1963? Right in the middle of those barren years between Lon Chaney and Andrew Lloyd Webber. I figured they just shuffled the Phantom masks over to Godzilla. It was a disappointment. The mask presented another problem I had never encountered with the pillowcase head. I had just gotten glasses that year. So, do I wear the glasses with the mask? I tried. That's when I learned the hard lesson that all exhaled carbon dioxide and water vapor goes out through the eye holes of the mask and it will fog up your glasses. So, do I wear the mask with no glasses and sacrifice vision at night? Or do I wear the lame Godzilla suit without the mask, rendering me almost costumeless? I look like the child version of those cult people who wore black jumpsuits and kids' tennis shoes who castrated themselves and drank poison so they could live in space. Had they existed at this time, it would have been scary, but they didn't. But it was a tough call. I went with the Godzilla suit, bag for candy, and carried the mask to put on later if it seemed like the right thing to do. It wasn't. When I got to Jimmy Foster's house, I was ushered by Mrs. Foster into the basement. Rock and roll music was on the stereo. Lights had red filters, making it difficult to see. My eyes adjusted, and I saw all of my classmates were lounging on sofas making out. This was a sex party! I was the only person there in a real Halloween store-bought suit, a Godzilla suit. The other boys were dressed up like lumberjacks, truck drivers, or cowboys. They penciled in mustaches and or beards. In other words, they were all representing sexually active men with minimum wage jobs, which many of them, ironically enough, ended up becoming. All the girls looked like various tarts and strippers, which they did not end up becoming. In fact, for many of them, the way they looked in that basement that night, I am guessing, was the hottest they ever looked in their lives. There was one other dear soul who was on the same wrong page as myself, Claire Richards. I had a crush on her since second grade when I saw her play the piano in her bluebird outfit. She came as a farm girl, complete with pigtails and painted on freckles. She also brought a bag for candy that she had kicked under her seat in shame. We sat together, watched all of the heavy petting from afar, and talked about classes and teachers. Later that evening, we went out. We went door to door to get our candy. I suppose it was sort of my first date. We discovered the real meaning of Halloween that night, which is, no matter where you go, 
no matter what you do on Halloween. You will always imagine somebody else is having more fun than you are. So we flash forward 25 years, and I'm in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm shooting a movie, Great Balls of Fire. I play Judd Phillips, who was Jerry Lee Lewis's, a.k.a. Dennis Quaid's, manager. It was the first job where I got what they call a run-of-the-picture deal. This means they pay you for the entire picture, whether you are working or not. I later found out that people who get a run-of-the-picture deal are either big stars that they want to hold for the entire shoot in case they're reshoots or rewrites, yeah, that wasn't me, or actors who get paid so little that it's cost-effective to keep them there, out of town, on location, to use their scenes as rain cover, or if the director wants to go skiing or whatever. Yeah, that was me. Because I was a run-of-the-picture guy, I had many days off in a row. In fact, on that shoot, I averaged one day of work for every 14 days off. Sweet. (laughs) So I got to do a lot of things. I got to see Memphis. I drank a lot, smoked a lot of marijuana, watched TV, smoked marijuana and watched TV. I took up golf. I took car trips to Natchez Trace. Yeah, I visited my girlfriend, Anne, in Anchorage, Alaska, all in between workdays. In fact, I had just gotten back from Alaska, and it was Halloween night. I was in the Rum Boogie Cafe, which was a great blues club in Memphis. I'd been drinking and smoking marijuana most of the day, and I was in a state of complete mental collapse. So my primary response to almost anything said was, Sounds good to me. A normal-looking guy in his 20s sat down at my table. He said his name was Jason and told me he was going to a really cool Halloween party outside of town and asked if I wanted to go. I said, Sounds good to me. Yeah, I followed Jason's van for about 30 minutes outside of Memphis to a corrugated tin building in the middle of nowhere, or at least at the very outskirts of nowhere. The first thing that actually hits you when you're somewhere you probably shouldn't be is the lack of basic public services, like light. Darkness is a good indicator of places to avoid. Jason parked and jumped out of his van. He introduced me to his girlfriend. Her name was Beth. Yeah, that was a surprise. They were an odd couple. She was 70 years old. She wore faded jeans and a tie-dyed t-shirt. She wore a baseball cap that said Dragnet, and she had a voice several tones below mine, the product of decades of chain-smoking, drinking, and yelling at delivery men. She told me her name was Beth, and she was the queen of rock and roll. I nodded my respect to Her Majesty, and we went inside of the tin warehouse. It was jamming and slamming with blues and rock. It was loud. It was hot. They were selling beers out of an old bathtub. People were smoking unfiltered cigarettes. Jason jumped up on stage at one point, and they threw him a guitar, and he started playing, and he was good. Yeah, that was a surprise, too. Evening and the music continued on. After an hour of drinking beers and watching people sweating on stage, 
I needed to relieve myself, so I looked for the men's room. Couldn't find one. I yelled at someone if he knew where the restroom was. He yelled, Outside! Undaunted by the lack of running water or modern plumbing, I went outside where there were several men and a few of their dates peeing along the side of the building. It's hard to assess what is proper etiquette in an improper situation. You ask yourself questions you never asked before. For example, should I pee far away from the front door so as not to offend new arrivals? Should I pee at the back of the building where most of the women were peeing at the risk of being accused of being a perv? Should you pee next to someone who's just vomiting? Or should you stand next to someone else who's doing what you need to do? Should I pick the wind or the lee side of the building? All sorts of considerations I never dealt with before. In the end, I picked the wind side of the building because it was most private. Who would willingly pee into the wind? Me. And Jason. He unzipped next to me. Eh, you peeing against the building. <laughs> yeah, sounds good to me. Jason smiled and said, Well, you know, I own this building. I tried to stop midstream. Really? Uh, I'm sorry, do you mind? No, nah, no, nah, go ahead. Enjoy. Ah, thank you. Beth, the queen of rock and roll, came up and put her arms around the two of us. Well, here are my boys. Soon as you're done, we gotta get the hell out of here. Jason smiled at me and said, Come on, got a surprise for you. I zipped up and followed them to the cars. Jason said, Hey, you know, leave your car here. It's going to be too hard to give you directions. Just come with us in the van. Hey, sounds good to me. I wandered over to the van. Jason said, Hey, Beth, honey, why don't you sit in the back? Let him sit up front. Well, why the fuck should I do that, said Beth. Because he's our guest. He's an actor. Show some manners. Beth got in the back. She was clearly steamed. So uh, you're a professional actor? Uh, I guess. I pay union dues. You ever work with Dan Aykroyd? Uh, no. You know him? No. I know him. Jason interrupted. Let him wear the hat, Beth. What, the dragnet hat? Yeah. No fucking way. Give him the fucking hat. No. Trying to be the peacemaker, I said, uh, Jason, uh, Beth can keep the hat. No, 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 no. She should give you the hat. Dan Aykroyd gave me that hat. I try to make peace again. Then, Beth, you should keep the hat. Beth, give him the fucking hat. If I give you the hat for tonight, you got to protect it. If you lose it, I will fucking cut your balls off. If you get it dirty, I will cut your balls off and jam them in your ears. Uh, guys, guys, I don't need the hat. It was only during the Dan Aykroyd dragnet hat discussion I noticed that it was 2.30 in the morning and the van was weaving in and out of darkened neighborhoods tearing over Hill and Dale. And I didn't have a clue as to where we were. Beth continued, I am the queen of rock and roll and I have killed people before, sucker, and I'll kill you too if you mess with my hat. Look, take the hat. I don't want the hat. I put the hat back on her head. Jason, take me back to my car. I should go back to my car, back to the hotel, go to bed. You know, it's almost three. Jason turned to me and gave me a kind of creepy smile. No, 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 no way. No going back now, pal. Then it hit me. They were going to kill me. 
It was Halloween. They picked me out at the Rum Boogie Bar, got me out in the country, got me in the van, put the dragnet hat on me like they did to all of their victims in some sort of Dan Aykroyd-related ritual. Now I was feeling very sober and very scared. I started looking for a turn where the van would have to slow down or a grassy embankment where I could jump out wherever we were and run for it. As a rule in life, you have made several bad choices when your plan A is to jump out of a moving van. The van started to slow and I saw lights up ahead, then a long driveway, then a gate. Jason pulled up to the gate and stopped the van. Wait here a sec. I gotta put the code in to open the gate. Uh, where are we? Jason smiled as he got out of the van. Graceland. Graceland? You mean Elvis's Graceland? Yeah, I live here. Beth chimed in proudly. He's the caretaker. I got him the job because I fucked Elvis. I fucked Jerry Lee. Well, hell, I fucked them all. It may have been the one thing Beth said all night that I believed completely. We drove up to the mansion. I got out of the van. We walked into the caretaker's apartment on the property. The living room of their place was completely empty, except for an orange crate to sit on and an eight-foot purple bear, one at the state fair, leaning in the corner. We brought you here because you're in show business. Beth has written a book all about rock and roll legends that she's had sex with, and we thought you could read it and give us a critique. Beth handed me a thick type manuscript. Uh, sure. Be glad to. Have a seat. I'll make some salsa. You need a beer? Absolutely, I said. Probably two or four. I read for the next three hours. I read as the sun came up. I was not so much impressed by the style as with the sheer number of people Beth had sex with. Anyway, that morning... I called a friend in publishing in New York who contacted a friend of hers at Dell. Eventually, Dell called Beth to discuss a book deal. Now, I don't know if that book ever got published, but I heard that Beth was still writing. Next day, believe it or not, I had to work. At lunch, John and Jimmy and Fergie were talking about their evening. They asked me if I did anything special for Halloween. I looked at them. I said last night was like life, some good, some bad. On the bad side, I was kidnapped in a white Astro van, held against my will and almost killed over Dan Aykroyd. On the good side, I was taken to Graceland and I met the Queen. Par for the course on Halloween. I got the call on a cold, gray morning in 1988, shortly after Halloween. I was in Memphis, Tennessee, shooting a movie ironically titled Great Balls of Fire. I was staying at the Radisson Hotel, whose claim to fame was that it was across the street from a really good hotel, the Peabody. Proximity to quality was about all the Radisson had to offer. 
That and miniature ivory soaps were placed daily in the shower. My sweet at the Radisson was also provided with a 19-inch color television set, which carried local programming along with three cable stations free of charge, CNN and two ESPNs. Now, the ESPNs were exactly the same but I suspect they were harnessed from different time zones, resulting in identical programming with a one-hour differential. That meant you could watch SportsCenter 14 times a day instead of the usual seven. Now, this is a long-winded explanation as to why I was watching SportsCenter for the fourth consecutive time when the phone rang. It was my girlfriend, Anne, calling from her hotel room in Anchorage, Alaska. Hello, Stephen? I responded with my standard, hey, baby, which captured the combination of nonchalance and amazement that I had a girlfriend. Then she broke into a silence. My internal male warning lights went on. What, she calls, then she doesn't speak? Plus, you factor in the different time zones. It was 8 a.m. here in Memphis. That means it wasn't even dawn in Alaska. Calling before dawn, not good, not good at all. I broke into a sweat. She began with the ever-ominous, Are you sitting down? I was, in fact, lying down, because the telephone cords at the Radisson were so short and twisted. You had to either lie down or kneel beside the bed to lift the receiver without pulling the whole phone off the bedside table. As it turned out, Either position was suitable for what I was about to hear. I told her I was in a relaxed position. In truth, I knew what she was about to tell me. It was not a surprise. I had just visited her the week before in Anchorage, and she told me for the last few days she had been feeling sick in the mornings. Even for me, it was not much of a jump to morning sickness. She said she was feeling nauseous. Just the thought of chicken or fish, her favorites, sickened her. She had wild cravings for McDonald's quarter pounders with cheese at all times of the day and night. I smiled even though the blood was draining from my head. I told her, go to the doctor. Go to a real doctor. Get a real test. Don't trust those little drugstore strips. And while I was talking, I was mentally kicking myself and thinking back to that afternoon six weeks ago in Los Angeles. That one afternoon with just her and me and that damn black cowboy hat. Let me explain. A few days before that fateful afternoon with the cowboy hat, I invited Anne out on a date to the Palomino Club. I wanted her to hear country-western singer-songwriter Bobby Bear. He's one of my favorites. The Palomino Club was considered a very hip venue at the time, despite the fact it was painted black and smelled like beer and urine. Knowing she was no big fan of country music or the Palomino Club, I decided to sell the idea not so much as an evening of entertainment, but as an adventure, like going on a photo safari in Kenya. To push the adventure angle, I went to King's Country Western Clothing Store and bought her a sleeveless t-shirt and that black cowboy hat so she could look like white trash and fit in. She was an actress. I figured she would relish playing the role of a honky-tonk angel for one night. And she did. It was a romantic evening. It was late summer. We drove to the club with the windows rolled down. At a red light... I looked over at her. 
she looked good. She also looked like she chewed tobacco and drove a tractor, but she looked good. To digress again. I realize now that a man never buys a woman anything without imagining how she will look with it naked. This was true with the knee-high Italian boots I bought her. It was true of the golden necklace. It was even true of the big sit-down singer sewing machine I considered one anniversary. So I bought this black cowboy hat with the red feather in the band. And yes, for a passing moment, as she sat next to me, I imagined how she would look in that hat naked. A week later, I found out for myself. And six weeks later, I was sitting in a breakfast joint in Anchorage, Alaska, jet-lagged out of my mind, drinking entire pots of coffee, and listening to her telling me how now she may be eating McDonald's for two. That was a week ago. Now I'm lying in my bed in Memphis watching a rerun of a rerun of a rerun of SportsCenter, getting the official word via long distance, the word confirmed by modern medicine, she was pregnant. I told her we should get married as soon as possible. She said she didn't want to get married simply because she was pregnant. She said she would go away somewhere out to the country and have the baby. Then at some future date, we could decide if we wanted to take the step of marriage. Feeling a little bit like the horse was already out of the barn and that she had read too many Charles Dickens novels, I suggested that there was no somewhere to go away to anymore, at least not in this century. What did she mean by out in the country? Oxnard? La Jolla? Besides, the awful truth was, I was happy. I had something new growing inside of me, too. A feeling. It was a feeling that something had started that I didn't want to miss. And not just the birth, not just the cutting of the cord and the morning walks with the stroller, but feeling the first kicks, the belly checks, driving to McDonald's in the middle of the night, picking out furniture for the nursery, choosing a name, aye, choosing a name. And as to names, would it be a boy or a girl? Didn't matter. I had been enlisted into something bigger than a historic movement or a campaign. I had become a member of the forward march of time itself. The thoughts of fathering a baby boy or a baby girl carried equal force. In the words of Charles Dickens, loosely translated from Bleak House, a woman's purpose is to ennoble mankind. A man's purpose is to protect that forward movement. Either way, I had a job cut out for me. I hung up the phone and I had to tell someone. I called up my parents. After a lengthy pause, my mother said, Oh, God, Stephen, no, no. Maybe you could get an abortion. This was not the ringing endorsement I had expected. I was immediately angry and protective. I said, This was my future they're talking about. What was it to them anyway? No skin off of their noses. They were just being turned into grandparents, something my brother had already turned them into three times. I still had to tell someone. Someone who would be happy. Someone who would join in my celebration. There was a knock at my door. Yes, I said. It was housekeeping. She said she could come back later. I screamed, no, 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 please, come in. <laughs> come in, please, I'm up, I'm ready. I unlocked the door. An old black woman backed into the room with her bucket and mop. I chirped, well, how are you this morning? I fine. She grabbed some towels from her cart and headed for the bathroom. I followed her. 
well, I'm kind of crazed now. I just got a call from my girlfriend, and yeah, I'm going to be a father. The maid turned and looked at me, stared at me blankly, dropped off the towels and started to strip the bed. I continued, yep, my girl just called me, just got the word from her doctor, it's official. I'm going to have a baby. The maid chewed her gum thoughtfully for a second and then said, I pray for you, honey. This wasn't what I needed. I thanked her and left the room. I headed for the lobby looking for someone else to tell, preferably someone I knew. At first glance, the lobby appeared deserted. Then out of the corner of my eye, I saw movement and a flash of color. It was a red vest, the signature outfit of the bartender at the Radisson Hotel. He sort of qualified as someone I knew. I spent a good deal of time in and around the bar. I had made eye contact with him several times when I was shoveling free baskets of popcorn at happy hour. The bar was open. What better place to share my news? I sat on the wooden stool as the bartender, who was in sort of an early morning trance, slid a paper coaster in front of me. What can I get you? I toyed with him. Let me see. Let me see. Not really sure. Kind of a special morning. <laughs> yeah, I got some, ah, got some big news. I found out I'm going to have a baby. The bartender awoke and looked at me. He smiled. Congrats, man. He reached over and patted my arm. Drinks on the house. And there it was. The first tangible benefit of approaching fatherhood. Free alcohol. It was my first free drink. Being that it was before 10 a.m., I ordered a Bloody Mary. I sat alone at the Radisson bar, chewing on my celery stick. I realized that, up until this point in my life, I had never done anything that merited a free drink from a stranger. And I'd done plenty of things. I'd been to weddings, been to funerals, had opening nights and closings. This was different. There was something in the bartender's eyes, something that registered not happiness for me, but relief that it wasn't him, a special joy that in a cosmic way I had let him off the hook, a sort of there but for the grace of God go I. I was still unsatisfied. I needed to sit face to face with a friend, a compatriot, or at least someone whose name I knew, and share the moment. I left the bar and headed into the coffee shop. Maybe someone from the movie would be around. And there he was, Dick. Dick, our head stuntman. He was all alone. He was eating breakfast. He smiled and waved me over to his table. He said innocently, Hey, man, what's up? I lit up like a Christmas tree. I sat down across from him. Well, Dick, there's a lot up. A lot. <laughs> oh, man, this has been some morning. I just heard from my girl. She's pregnant. I'm going to be a father. Dick looked up from his toast and eggs. He was serious as death. His eye had no trace of celebration. In an even measured tone, he said, Well, my friend, you are in it now. His look chilled me. He mopped up some egg with a piece of toast. Stephen, when you have a child, your life will never be the same again. Ever. Again. Uh, thanks, Dick. I returned to my room and flipped on ESPN. 
Sports Center was on. I gave Annie a call and told her how happy I was. We both cried. But Dick's words hung in the air like a curse. A life sentence handed down from above. I was in it now. That was 15 years ago. And I could say with the wisdom of hindsight, Dick was right. But the pronouncement that life would never be the same has not been the curse I feared, but rather a solemn blessing. I'm the father of two children, two wild boys. Between homework and laundry and fixing endless bowls of top ramen, Anne and I hardly had a chance to get out. One night, on a whim, I sprung for a babysitter, and we went out for a romantic dinner of sushi, if such a thing is possible. We downed the first couple bottles of sake, more out of relief of being away from the kids than actual thirst. I was eating yellowtail and talking about nothing in particular when Anne's eyes drifted up to something unseen behind me. Her face registered fear. Then big hands came down on my shoulder. I turned around in my seat, and it was Dick! Of all people, it was Dick! My stuntman confidant, after all of these years, I stood up, I hugged him. He punched me in the stomach in that sort of macho guy greeting sort of way. Oh, I hate that. I introduced Dick to Anne. I reminded her of the morning in Memphis and the call and the breakfast I had with Dick in the coffee shop at the Radisson. Anne laughed and blushed and laughed again. It was such a long time ago. Dick said, you know, we should play golf. I said, sure. (laughs) I hate golf. I hate golf because I think no other activity reveals the vast difference between our intentions and reality. We always intend to hit it straight down the fairway, but it flies into the trees, into the pond, into the parking lot of the apartment building next to the third hole. I asked Anne if I could go play some morning. She said, sure, even though she hated golf too. I turned back to Dick and was struck silent. He had tears rolling down his cheeks. He wiped them away roughly with the back of his hand, quietly choking back sobs, saying, I was walking down the street, and I had to talk to someone. I saw you in here. Sure, Dick, sure. He paused to get a breath. I just lost my little girl, my baby, my firstborn. She pretty much raised me. She was 24, lived up north, had an asthma attack, couldn't get to help on time. Stephen, when you lose a child, your life will never be the same again. Ever. Again. Sorry to bother you. I just had to tell someone. And I knew you would understand. Call me. We'll play. Dick walked out of the restaurant. Anne asked me later what he said. I told her. We finished our dinner in silence. That night we went home and put our kids into bed, kissed them goodnight. Anne and I turned out the lights and we held on to each other in the dark. And I thought about the black cowboy hat that we had wrapped in plastic in the closet and the difference between intentions and reality and the call I got so long ago that became my life. Up in the morning Out on the job 
Work like a devil for my pay Why the lucky old son Ain't got nothing to do But roll around heaven all day That was Sex, Death, and Halloween, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowski, and you're listening to The Tobolowski Files. Stephen, I have some big news uh, to mention at the end of this podcast, but uh, before we get to that, maybe we can tell people how they can find more episodes of the show and reach you personally by email. Yeah, I guess the best place you could find the show, you you could find everything right at SlashFilm.com, is that correct? Just go to TobolowskiFiles.com and you'll find every single episode of the Tobolowski Files. And what's your personal email address for everyone to see? I think if anybody needs to write me, and first of all, I want to thank people, people, David, all over the world have been writing me the last month. And I really appreciate it. I've got, we've had some great uh, letters and stories. It's at stephentobolowski at gmail.com, and I'll spell it for you. It's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-T as in Tom, O-B as in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K-Y, the Russian spelling. Yeah. Uh, at gmail.com, yeah. So a couple of big pieces of news, Stephen. Firstly, yeah. by the time that people are listening to this episode of the Tobolowski Files, uh, we will have reached final cut on The Primary Instinct. No, you're kidding! Which is uh, the final version of the movie that we made based on uh, the Tobolowski Files. I did not know this, David. This is huge news. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that is going to be fun. And uh, and we already have a pretty good idea of when we're going to premiere sometime in 2015. And so uh, I'm very confident we'll be able to get everyone uh, to see the film uh, who, who signed up for the Kickstarter uh, within the next you know six to eight months or so. So that's very exciting. Um, and also, we have completed recording for the two bonus episodes promised uh, via the Kickstarter campaign. So, uh, if you know, the, part of the rewards for the Kickstarter were that you could sponsor us for, I think, like forty or sixty dollars. You get one or two bonus episodes of the podcast. Those episodes uh, are now uh, recorded in the can, and uh, we just need to get them out, and that will happen sometime in the next uh, month or so. Uh, and for those who want to listen to those episodes, but did not uh, back us on Kickstarter, first of all, shame on you. Uh, but secondly, <laughs> you will be able to uh, get those episodes. I think we're going to uh, have them available for purchase. Um, but yeah, stay tuned for details about that on the next episode of The Tobolowski Files. So a uh, lot of news, a lot of uh, moving and shaking going on in uh, the world of uh, the Tobolowski Files. And, and those uh, are a mammoth episodes. They are like an hour episode, and they have live music, which we just recorded here in L.A. as, uh, I mean, music that you'll never hear anywhere else, I promise you. <laughs> yes, nor should you. Anyway, <laughs> thank you guys for listening to this week's episode of the Tobolowski Files. We will see you all later. Adios. Let me roll around heaven. Let me roll around heaven. My God, let me roll around heaven all day.